The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political commentator for news radio stations WGN in Chicago and KNX in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communication Research, polls for and designs research-based message and media strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, go to Facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Today is the first ever video broadcast of Deadline DC. For those of you watching on Twitter or Periscope, right now, welcome, and we're excited to have you. For those of you who are not uh, connected on Periscope or Twitter, go to tiny, uh, go to uh, tinyurl, that's all one word, tinyurl.com front slash watch Brad. That's tinyurl.com front slash watch Brad. You can join in. I hope you like seeing me and I hope it doesn't scare you away. Someone once told me that I had the perfect voice and face for radio. Today will be the first test of that. We have had shows on the medical and economic implications of the coronavirus. Today, we'll discuss the political impact. If you want to be part of this show and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Our first guest today is Charlie Cook founder and publisher of the Cook Political Report. Uh, in the second half hour, Democratic strategist Mo Vella joins us for the provocative progressive political panel, along with political activist Mark Grimaldi. Our guest in this segment is Charlie Cook, founder and publisher of the Cook Political Report. Charlie is one of America's most prominent and shrewdest political observers. He is a frequent guest on Meet the Press on NBC and a columnist for the National Journal. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Charlie. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Always a pleasure. First of all, uh, let's start with this. Uh, in uh, the la- in initially, uh, President Trump was getting pretty decent marks for handling uh, the coronavirus crisis, uh, but lately, according to Gallup, uh, he is now a net negative uh, handling the crisis. Uh, what do you think, how do you think that uh, Americans are going to respond to the president's handling of this crisis? 
Well, I think they started off, uh, he had come after the impeachment uh, uh, situation back last fall, his numbers had come up by about a point or two. And then you got into the virus and, and uh, he did go up uh, somewhere between two and five points. It doesn't it depends on you know who you're focused on. And then it looks like it sort of leveled off, maybe settled a little. Gallup was an outlier on the high side at, when they got up to 49. And then now he's at 44 in theirs. But, you know, each one, uh, you know, you look at the averages. He's at 47, 45, where he's leveled off. But, I mean, I think it's a combination of somewhat of the, a little bit of the rally around the flag that whenever a time of crisis, uh, people tend to, to unite behind their president, whether they particularly like him or not, but that's their first reaction. I think the second was a little bit of relief, better late than never. And that I think people were really annoyed that he was in denial for a long time. Uh, but at least when he started focusing on it as awkwardly as he did, and it was oftentimes, uh, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, but it was like uh, at least whoever is the president is focused on it. So there's a little bit of, of that. I think he then he started flooding the zone by dominating press news coverage in the mid in the late afternoon, early evenings. And, you know, if, if he's on cable, nobody else is. If his people are on, nobody else's people are on and sort of flooding the zone. And then the final thing is uh, being able to just to simply circumvent the traditional media that uh, he's just mainstreaming to his base as long as his as long as he could give his base a narrative, a even remotely plausible narrative, they will stick with him. And, you know, no matter what happens. And so keeping that keeping them together has been a, a very, very strong thing for them. And, and um, you know, I think his base is going to turn out no matter what. And the base of people that don't like him are going to turn out no matter what. And there aren't that many people in the middle. And we'll see what happens there. OK, uh, let's turn to Joe Biden. Uh, Biden is sort of in an awkward uh, situation, if you want my opinion. Uh, he is almost the Democratic nominee, except his primary opponent, Bernie Sanders, is still in the race. And at a time of crisis, uh, Americans are uh, understandably uh, fixated on the commander in chief and his staff who are dealing with the crisis. So uh, how do you think Joe Biden is handling, handling this uh, interim period? I think he's doing it right. I think just keeping a low profile, um, uh, you know, he's not president. There's, he's not in a position to do anything. Um, they are just now putting together a national campaign because he didn't really have one before, uh, trying to raise some money and, and, uh, uh, and you know, basically trying to, uh, and they're starting the early stages of vetting a running mate. So right now, I think the more public a, a presumptive Democratic nominee would be right now, uh, I think it would that would be a very damaging, a bad place to be. You don't want to be seen as 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 uh, politicizing, being partisan at this point. And, um, you know, they've got a lot of the spade work to do that most campaigns, presidential campaigns would have done last year. But, you know, they had no money until after Super Tuesday. So they're they're really piecing together a real campaign now for the first time. Yeah, actually, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the Biden campaign. 
they did this. He became the presumptive Democratic nominee, barely spending any money. I think on Super Tuesday, he spent less than a million dollars and despite that came away with a decisive victory. Our guest in this yep. half hour is uh, Charlie Cook, publisher of The Cook Report. Uh, we're going to break now, but when we come back, we'll have more with Charlie and talk about the potential matchup between the Democratic presumptive candidate Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, uh, video and all, when we get back from these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Charlie Cook, publisher of The Cook Report and a columnist for the National Journal. Charlie is one of the foremost and prominent and shrewdest political observers for the American political scene. Uh, Charlie, let's talk about uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. At the moment, uh, Joe Biden has a lead of 300 delegates towards the uh, Democratic presidential nomination over Sanders. Um, I did some calculations and I figured out that to win the nomination, Sanders would have to win 65 percent of the unallotted delegates who haven't been selected so far. Uh, last week, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, that said some of uh, Sanders' advisors are urging him to get out of the race. Some of them are urging him for the to stay in the race. Uh, what do you think uh, Senator Sanders is going to do? Um, I think he'll be getting out shortly. I, I, the thing is, I think I think uh, Vice President Biden and his team are playing this right. Give him a lot of space. He's earned it. Uh, let him and his supporters come to closure and do this on their own timetable. You know, as long as Sanders isn't, you know, isn't attacking Biden, uh, it, it, there's not any harm with him staying in until he's ready to get out. There, there's the, you know, particularly at a time like right now with this crisis where functionally speaking, there isn't a campaign of any kind. So it's not doing any harm. Uh, I, I, so I think let 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 Sanders come to it on uh, on his own terms. And uh, um, again, it's not doing any harm right now. You know, as we talked about in the last segment, uh, Biden's got to put together a campaign, not worry about Bernie Sanders. And and you know, you can just listen to what Sanders has said. I mean, clearly he doesn't think he's he's got got a chance anymore. But but you know, I think he's earned uh, an opportunity to. Um, to to make a decision on his own time and not get rushed into it. And I think the establishment ought to leave him alone and let him get there on his own. Sounds like good, good advice to me, Charlie. Uh, let's uh, take a look at another aspect of the uh, Biden campaign. Uh, uh, Vice President Biden has uh, announced very publicly at the last debate uh, that he is going to have a female running mate. Uh, let's... Uh, handicap some of the uh, major possibilities. Uh, let's start with uh, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris from uh, California. What do you think of her as a running mate? Um, I, I, I mean, I think she certainly would, would be in the mix. Um, um, you know, I don't think she really helped herself with Biden in, in that, uh, you know, one of those, that early debate. Oh, but, yeah, that was a nasty um, one. Yeah, no, that that wasn't. I mean, even though there was sort of a long time relationship between her and the Biden family, that kind of got undone 
uh, pretty 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 quickly. Um, you know, I think clearly, I think the vice president picking an African American. I mean, he's going to go with a woman no matter what. Picking an African American that makes makes a good bit of sense. But you know, I think and and to me, probably the strongest um, argument for her was is is the fact that she was she had been an attorney general. I mean, someone who's only been a legislator and hasn't run anything, managed anything. I, I think it's a little. Is, is a little um, uh, a little dangerous. I mean, the thing is that normally running mates don't matter, and they they can help in their home states, uh, but they're more likely to hurt than help someplace. But they really don't matter. It's overrated. But when you have a seventy seven year old nominee, it really matters. And whoever he nominates, I mean, I know they always say this, but this time it's actually true. Has to be ready to 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 take over on you know January twenty first, and uh, so. I, I think the, I, a, pick, a pick that looks blatantly political, one that's just checking boxes, uh, I think would not be would not be the wisest thing. But would I, you know, would she be in the final five or six? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. In your in your opinion, who were the uh, female candidates who could help Biden the most? Well. I think the most qualified, I mean, I think people, um, again, I'm not looking, I would not, if somebody were from a key state, that'd be great, but that's not why I'd pick them. Um, and from the, from a key state, I think Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, um, that's actually the only swing state person that I would have on a, on a, on a short list. Um, because uh, the rest of them, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, I mean, Democrats, they won't win Minnesota by much, but they're more likely to, if they're, they're not winning Minnesota, they're not winning an election anyway. Um, and then I've got a, a long shot pick um, that that it sort of goes to that point of somebody that's totally, totally qualified and doesn't look political at all. And that'd be uh, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who was uh, secretary of HHS and OMB director under Obama. Uh, this would be you look at a pick like that and say, wow, this is somebody that actually knows the job from the get go could take over the first day. And it doesn't look like a pick that would be done for electoral purposes. And that's something that I would do. But uh, um, but the, the other thing is he's got to pick somebody that's uh, in their 40s, 50s or, or early 60s. Uh, anybody over anybody 70 or over, I think, is off the list. So for. You know, as much as a lot of people like Elizabeth Warren, um, he can't pick somebody who's going to be, you know, 71 before the election. Uh, a 77 year old who's about to turn 78 can't do that. So that's one that would not be on a list for me. Uh, let's uh, let me ask you. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know. Whatever ha- I don't know, no one. I don't, if unless you're a medical expert, no one really knows how this virus thing is going to play out. Um, but we know it's going to do considerable damage to the nation, uh, both uh, uh, you know socially and economically. Uh, how do you think Trump's? I mean, l- let's say this thing lasts a couple of months, um, and it's you know already I think something like five or six thousand Americans have died. How do you think Trump's going to come out of this politically? I find it. 
Look, I think I think I think a Democrat is very, very likely to win the popular vote almost no matter what. And so what we're really talking about is Electoral College. We're really talking about the last handful, you know, last five, six, seven states. I have a hard time seeing this in a, a, a way that 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 shines on him favorably um, that. With with swing voters, and I mean, his base is going to come out. The Democratic base, everybody's base is going to be out. But for that little sliver of votes between the two forty-eight yard lines, these are people who were genuinely torn. On one side, they were they were they were giving President Trump credit for the economy. They liked where the economy was, and they were giving credit. But on the other hand, they had real questions about his character, his and and, and doubts about. You know, the, his leadership style, chaos, confusion, all that. And those things, as long as the economy was good, those things were balancing each other out. But you take away, forget a headwind. Let's just assume there isn't a headwind against him, and there really could be. But just the lack of that tailwind or to mix metaphors to take that weight, off the take the uh, economy out of that equation then I think all the other doubts about his leadership style and about him as a person, I think it becomes more important. And uh, I, I, I don't, you know, unless you're in the base, I think you have a hard time looking at him and saying, wow, this is the way we should have handled it. And, uh, you know, last night my wife and I were looking at, uh, we were watching it, uh, or this morning, the, the uh, tape of the Queen. And I thought of her address to, to, the, to UK last night. And I thought, you know what, this is what a leader is supposed to say. This is the way yeah. you're supposed to act. I thought and the I think, same I think, thing. I think voters in the middle know that. Okay. And it wasn't what you'd say for his base, but uh, that is how you'd act. And, and they know this isn't. So I, I still, I don't think this is going to work in his favor, but it's okay. going to be a real close race. And Charlie, you know, uh, close races that's, can go either way. thanks for joining us. That's all the time we have today. Um, our guest was Charlie Cook, publisher of the Cook Political Report and one of the shrewdest political observers in the United States. We will be back with Mo Vela, uh, Mark Romaldi, and our progressive provocative political panel after these messages. Make sure you stay tuned. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and Credence Clearwater Revival. In this half hour, we're, we will, as usual, uh, conduct our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, but before that, uh, let me talk a little bit about the uh, uh, coronavirus crisis. The ink was barely dry on Donald Trump's signature on the COVID-19 relief package passed by Congress when it became apparent that the new law was already obsolete. Last week, unemployed Americans filed six and a half million jo- uh, jobless claims. Yesterday, the U.S. Surgeon General, Daron Adams, said, we are at a Pearl Harbor moment and a 9-11 moment. Uh, this week with thousands of American deaths. A national Gallup poll conducted a week ago uh, indicated that three in five Americans believe that the U.S. is already in a recession or a depression. Public opinion will be a self-fulfilling economic prophecy unless there's another round of economic stimulus. Consumers, even the ones that still have jobs, 
won't spend money if they feel economic disaster is just around the bend. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was quick to recognize the urgent need for more action to stimulate the economy. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell adopted a wait-and-see posture. Surprise. The difference between the two congressional leaders is symptomatic of the approaches of the two parties towards the coronavirus crisis. Most Democrats recognized the urgency of the situation early and were proactive while the Republicans were asleep at the switch and behind the curve as the pandemic ravaged the United States. National emergencies require government intervention, but Republican politicians wear anti-government ideological blinders that prevent them from seeing the big picture in a crisis. The GOP role model is Republican President Herbert Hoover, who stood by passively during the Depression. Democrats look up to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who grabbed the bulls by the horn and saved the United States from economic oblivion. The best way to illustrate the, uh, par- the two parties uh, is to compare and contrast the urgency with which government, uh, Democratic governors like Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom attacked the virus compared to Donald Trump's laissez-faire approach. Nine states still do do not have stay-at-home orders, and the governors of all nine are Republicans. Two Republican governors of states with large urban populations, Ron DeSantis of Florida and Brian Kemp of Georgia, had to be dragged kicking and screaming to issue stay-at-home orders. Speaker Pelosi is right to think we need another round of economic stimulus. The national emergency also requires a better package with more relief to ordinary Americans and less to big business. The new relief package contains cash grants uh, amounting to $506 billion. Uh, This money extends unemployment benefits to millions of people who have lost their jobs and cash grants of up to $1,200 to most Americans. Half a trillion dollars is a lot of money, but the pandemic will plague this nation for the foreseeable future and $1,200 won't last very long for middle class and poor families. The jobless benefits are necessary, but many of the unemployed won't have jobs to return to when the pandemic finally exhausts itself. The CARE Act allocates almost as much money to big corporations as it does to individual Americans and more money than is authorized for small businesses. The big pot of money for big business is a victory for plutocrats and autocrats uh, and a defeat for hardworking American families. The new law gives the president wide discretion in spending the money, so it's a big win for crony capitalism. The law does mandate the appointment of an inspector general to investigate abuses, but Donald Trump just unceremoniously fired the inspector general who started the investigation into the infamous presidential Ukrainian call that led to Trump's impeachment. The package would have been even worse if it wasn't for Nancy Pelosi uh, and the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. 
The Speaker and Senate Majority Minority Leader Charles Schumer pushed for a bill that was more friendly to working Americans, but Mitch McConnell tugged in the opposite direction with the backing of the president. When the United States controlled the White House and both house, well, when the GOP controlled the White House and both houses of Congress before the midterm elections in 2008, Republicans passed a tax cut law which benefited corporations and wealthy Americans much more than it did working families. Trickle down economics is still alive and well in the age of the coronavirus. Ronald Reagan is gone, but his legacy lives on in the idea that the best way to help ordinary Americans is to give billions of dollars to big corporations in the hope that those corporate gifts will trickle down to ordinary people, and they hardly ever do. All we have to show for a generation of Reaganomics is a massive federal budget deficit built on tax cuts for bankers and billionaires and a level of income inequality between wealthy and ordinary Americans that could choke a horse and has short-changed economic growth. It's time to enact another relief package that puts people first instead of corporate America and finally lays Reaganomics to rest where it belongs to be. Let's try something that we haven't done for a long time and enact a relief package focused on ordinary Americans who can use their increased purchasing power to generate real and lasting economic growth. It's time for the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest on the panel today is Mo Vella. Uh, he served in President Obama's administration as the director of administration and a senior advisor in the office of Vice President Joe Biden. The stint was the second White House appointment for Mr. Vela, who served as chief financial officer and senior advisor on Hispanic uh, for Hispanic affairs for Vice President Al Gore. Vela holds his distinction to being the first Hispanic American and gay American to serve twice in a senior executive role in the White House. Joining Mo on the panel today is progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark is involved in campaign finance reform efforts around the country and philanthropic efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Welcome, panel. Uh, Mo, let's uh, let's go to you for the first uh, question. My first question is: Do you think there will be another uh, 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 COVID nineteen relief package? Uh, Speaker Pelosi has already called for one. Uh, Mitch McConnell is basically, uh, in typical style, said, "Well, we'll wait and see." Uh, what do you think? I actually do think so. Um, I think there will be one. I'm not entirely sure. The part that I'm a little different than most Democratic strategists is I don't think it's going to be as soon as we would like. Uh, but I do believe that we will get there and there will be one. Um, and I agree with your opening uh, beautiful uh, presentation in that this next one needs to focus more on ongoing support for everyday Americans. Um, but I will say this, I want to be careful with those of us as progressives and Democrats, of which I am proud to be both. Um, I want to be careful that we don't get too anti-business uh, because uh, I think what Bernie Sanders, for example, has been doing is really making businesses sound evil all the time. I want to be careful not to go there. 
because without businesses, we wouldn't have jobs, right? So I'm not suggesting we keep giving them more money. That's not what I'm saying. Let me be clear. But I also don't want to demonize them because without them, we don't have jobs. And so we need to find this healthy balance, Brad. Um, and I think that the next stimulus package needs to do exactly that. The last one was not balanced, as you so beautifully pointed out. The next one has to be in favor of everyday workers and everyday Americans. But I don't want us to become uh, imbalanced in any way. Well, I think that's fair, Mo. And again, uh, I think what we want uh, is uh, there's certainly a role for corporate aid in these situations. I mean, yes. Bo you know, Boeing in Washington state is, you know, close to being out of business That's and right. they employ something like 30,000 workers or something right. like that. Uh, but I think there has to be a better balance. Uh, I think there has to be more emphasis on aid to individual Americans because the reality is uh, the $1,200 is not, not going to last through a long crisis. Uh, and the reality is a lot of the people who were filing for unemployment benefits uh, won't have jobs to return to uh, when the crisis is over. That's right. Uh, I Mark, go ahead. Uh, Mark, what do you think? Okay. Uh, okay, we're going to keep oh, Sorry, going. can you hear me now, Brad? I had my, yeah, I I'm used to having myself muted for, uh, <laughs> well, I'm not off air. Um, I, you know, as someone who is living in, you know, the middle class and has worked my way up, thanks in a large part to um, opportunities that were during uh, the, given during the Obama administration so that people like myself who, came up, you know, I came up from a family without a and lot of money. fine education at Syracuse, at Syracuse University. University. That's right. I actually have yeah. my 2003 basketball national championship uh, hat still up there. Yes. Vice President Biden is an That's alum right. Well. That's yes, right. Yes, he is. That's we, I am too. So we've got oh, the, yeah. yeah. So we've got the trifecta there with your uh, former uh, employer, Vice President Biden, uh, Mo, which is pretty cool. So, um, you know, I, I think that with that being said, as someone who is still living in that, I see so many of my friends, you know, I'm 37 uh, I'm, uh, and the, the older end of the millennial spectrum, but who are, you know, all the money that we've saved up um, in case of any sort of emergency or, you know, putting money towards our family's education, it can quickly go away um, without the right type of uh, financial action, economic action, um, that is provided, uh, it, in help, uh, from the government, from business, you know, right now I'll give you a couple examples. Most people, you know, are calling, talking to your, your mortgage companies asking, you know, what type of deferred, uh, payments can I do? You know, how much interest am I going to build up? Even if you can pay your mortgage, which fortunately, you know, we're, we're able to do right now, my wife and I, we're still uh, like many Americans right now making the decision, well, should I defer and just take that money because of other emergencies that could potentially happen? Because it's coming at you from all angles. And right. that stimulus check that we're supposed to be getting, you know, it, it was supposed to be right away. You know, Secretary Mnuchin said that it was going to be so fast. And now you're hearing that some Americans may not even be getting it till the, the beginning of June, which is insane if it's supposed to be helping them. Some Americans could be pretty much, you know, out of all of their savings, if they had any, which I think it was something like 40% of Americans 
couldn't afford uh, a $400 medical bill. So imagine how many people are already that far behind. And that's wonderful that some of these companies are going to defer payments, but there's plenty of places that are not on a large scale that people have bills that they owe that can't do that. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, you know, lo- local people having their tenants, you know, if they own, you know, maybe one rental or something like that, and that is a stream of income for them, you want to be able to help those people. But by doing so, if they can't pay their rent, the next wave then goes, you can't pay your mortgage. And even if they give you some sort of a break, somebody's eating at you, you know, and the thing is, if that large uh, portion of Americans, if they go under, we're going to have a lot of trouble because they were spurring a lot of the economic growth by buying houses and buying cars. People who are who have young children who are going to make a lot of future economic purchases because they're going to do so as their family grows. If they can't do that now, then these businesses, once the quarantines end, that did happen to survive, are going to have a real tough road ahead. So that's the type of thinking that needs to be put forth because as Brad brought up in the end of, as you pointed out, Mo, I thought was really well put and beautiful monologue, um, fighting for the majority of American people, um, which is the middle class, uh, they, they need to be provided with a stimulus that will help them to pay those bills because then you want them to start spending again. Truly, that's, I mean, you don't want them to just save businesses from going under. That's going to be the initial part of it, but you're going to have to have a second and potentially third wave of some sort of uh, economic stimulus that is going to get the economy even remotely close to back back to where President Obama built it and Trump managed to not uh, screw it up for as long as he did until he decided to you know ignore two months of intelligence warnings from his team about uh, the pandemic, unfortunately. So um, I think uh, I'm in agreement with you on that, both of you. Okay, we're going to go to break now, but we come back from break. We'll have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our pr- provocative progressive political panel with uh, former administra- Obama administration official Mo Villa and our own progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. You've tuned in to our provocative progressive political panel. Today on the panel, our guest is Mo Vela, uh, who is a Democratic strategist and formerly uh, an official uh, in the Obama administration and also worked uh, for Joe Biden when he was uh, uh, vice president. and also, we have, as we usually do, Mark Grimaldi, uh, our good friend and progressive political activist. Mo, uh, you have worked for Joe Biden. What do you think uh, he is thinking in terms of a ring mate? He's already said it's going to be a woman. Uh, what names come to your mind? Well, first of all, uh, I, the exciting and the good news for our audience today is he's got a lot of incredible women to pick from. Um, it's amazing and so inspiring and awesome to see the Democratic Party with such amazing women in leadership roles. Uh, you know, uh, there's so many names, Brad, honestly, I don't even I hate to even start throwing out names, but you can't you can't leave off a Kamala Harris. You can't leave off. Catherine Cortez Musto from Nevada, for example, a Latina, uh, head of the DSCC right now. Uh, you know, you can't leave off uh, 
uh, Gretchen Whitmer in, Mash in Michigan, for example, uh, and Tammy Duckworth at Illinois, and, and the list just goes on and on. So, so fortunate we are to have so many amazing women uh, ready to go, uh, ready to take a leadership role, already playing leadership roles, uh, and exemplifying what's best of the Democratic Party. Well, you're right. Uh, we do have an abundance of riches, um, which I guess is a better way of putting it than we have uh, uh, binders full of women, which didn't work out for Mitt Romney very well. But uh, let, let me ask you this. Uh, it, it's obvious Joe Biden is going to win the Democratic presidential nomination. He has more than 300 delegates, more than Bernie Sanders does. Right. Um, I did some quick math before the show, and Sanders would have to win 65 percent of the unallotted delegates to win the nomination. Uh, so and there was a story in The Washington Post last week uh, that uh, some of Sanders' advisors are urging him to get out of the race. Uh, do you think Senator Sanders will get out of the race soon? Are we going to drag this all out all the way into the summer? I think that every day he stays in this race, frankly, demonstrates an embarrassment for him because it's embarrassing that he has not risen up to be a patriot because the right thing for him to have already done, Brad, was to get out of this race. His path to winning is so small, if at all, number one. Number two, you've got to look at what the voters have been saying in state after state. Joe Biden isn't winning by 1%. He's winning by massive amounts. And so to me, it's in politics is you have to be realistic and pragmatic. And you've got to set your ego. At some point, you've got to put your ego aside and I would have said to Bernie Sanders long ago, go out gracefully. Be proud of what you've done through your campaigns, both of them. You, you move the dial in many ways and you change the dialogue in many ways for the better. But go out on top. Why would you put yourself through this? I don't get it. I can't think of any other reason than just a horrible, horrible ego at this point. Uh, I'm so disappointed in the senator. And if I see one more nasty comment from his his followers, I'm going to lose it. Because let me tell you, that's not the spirit of the Democratic Party. And it's very obvious he's never been a Democrat. Because if they were Democrats, they wouldn't be acting that yeah. way. Mo, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, that's all for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thanks to my guest, Charlie Cook of the Cook Political Report, Democratic strategist Mo Vella, and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise any higher than it already is. And it's pretty high already. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay home.